You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We are just plugging away this weekend. This has been like a marathon weekend for us where this can be the last show. I think we kind of get sillier towards the end of the weekend. <laughs> we as, had a silly story last time. Well, yeah, I mean, that was that was our eighth episode just this weekend. And when you're doing them this way, it kind of... <laughs> Your brain you, starts to twist. <laughs> you get a little silly just sitting in this room. I wonder if we get enough uh, ventilation. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but anyway, no, we're... Back in Samuel, still in Samuel, uh, wrapping up yeah, 10, going to go into 11. Just a few verses left in the last of 10, and we're going to kind of revisit. So this, uh, basically we're picking up, this is Saul's public confirmation that he is king. He'd mm-hmm. been anointed by Samuel earlier, but was private. Saul hadn't told anyone, and now they've, they've cast lots. They've determined that he's from the tribe of Benjamin and he's from the family of Kish. But when they went to go find him, he was hiding among the baggage Mm -hmm. and uh, still funny. And yeah, (laughs) it's and it's really funny that that's literally a line in the Bible that God had to say, hey, behind the baggage, (laughs) go follow your fearless king, the one cowering behind the rollaway. (laughs) So, but the. the 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 king has been chosen at this point and samuel uh stops and he talks about the rights and the duties of the king uh we we aren't told what they are this is not what he was talking about in the previous chapter whenever we were talking about the king's protocol and uh how he talked about all the things that the king would take this is something different and uh, we're told that he writes a book. So we know that Samuel wrote down some of the things that happened, which is probably where we get a lot of these accounts of where, how they were remembered. And then Samuel sends all the people home. Now, what's going on here uh, is Samuel's making a legal description of the king's duties to God and his people. Uh, he's written the words that are going to define the monarchy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you got to remember, this is a whole new institution for Israel. So this is like, you know, the Magna Carta, the the, the, the Constitution. Constitution. Yeah. I, I wish we had a copy of that. I think oh, it would be really interesting. I, it would probably shed some major light on, on what's happening. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, it wasn't preserved for us. But... In doing this, he, he presents it to God. Uh, this means that, you know, he's taking it to the place of worship. He's probably, uh, at this point, we don't know exactly where it, it would be because we have four different places and the ark is in a fifth place. Mm-hmm. But he is putting it someplace where it's supposed to be held onto. It's supposed to be protected. And, you know, he really is codifying the king's relationship with Israel. And also, what role does the prophet play in this? Now, what this is not, this is not something we find described in Deuteronomy 17, 18, 18 through 20. Okay. I didn't, okay, I did not know this passage. I have probably read it and just didn't pay attention. Right. But this passage commands that the king would write his own Torah scroll. So the king of Israel is supposed to sit down and copy Genesis 
through Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. And that's supposed to be his to, to study. And the Levites are supposed to oversee how he does it. So your king has to be literate. Mm-hmm. He has to know the laws. He has to know the ceremonial laws. He's supposed to be so well-versed in this that he is actually qualified to lead. Mm-hmm. What an interesting you know, test for a king. I mean, we, we don't have tests like this for leadership today. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm thinking maybe circumstances might get better, but you know, it really didn't work for Israel, so I wouldn't expect too much, but still a nice idea. But yeah, the, the, the priests are, are going to oversee this, and he, he's supposed to read it all the days of his life. And basically, it's to try to remind the king, all of the things you get to do as kings, as a king, this is a gift from God. Mm-hmm. You, you are only doing this because God allows you to do this. And don't for a minute think that this nation is yours. You right. are my representative. And so the other thing that happens, Samuel sends the people away. They've got a king. Why is Samuel sending them away? Right. Samuel's not turning loose of anything until he has to. He he's, should not have been the one to send, him, send the people away. Saul should have been. But Saul doesn't, he doesn't seem to realize, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is real. <laughs> what am I supposed to be doing again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, and, and in some ways, Samuel not turning loose reflects the fact that God is not turning loose. So verse 26, we learn that Saul goes back to his home in Gibeah, and with him went the men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So Saul's still subject to Samuel because he, when, God, when Samuel released everyone, Samuel went home too, I mean, Saul went home too. And we reveal, you know, it's revealed, sorry, that Saul's home is Gibeah. And, you know, this is the city that had been destroyed during that civil war with the, the tribe of Benjamin. Mm-hmm. It should not have been rebuilt. Right. It is not the proper place for anyone to be living, let alone this should not be the place where the new king lives and becomes the de facto capital for God's nation. Right. So this, this betrayal of asking for a king is being tied to the betrayal of everything that happened with the Levite and the concubine and the civil war that follows. Mm-hmm. And we begin to see how that's really going to shape um, Saul's reign and his rule and what people think of him. Mm-hmm. And this mighty man of, of valor, um, I, I was kind of surprised that the ESV chose to translate it that way because it doesn't have Giborim in there. It, it I was wondering about that. No, it, does, it has Kagil, which is the, the, the valor part, mm-hmm. but the mighty men, it, it's missing. And so... You know, are these wealthy men? We're seeing how that's starting to um, become the translation and the way the word's used. We're progressing from that Genesis 6 way of using it. And mm-hmm. Sorry, Genesis 6 doesn't have that word, but from the judge's way of using it. Uh, and it could be that they're wealthy because at this point in time, if you are a good warrior, then you're more likely to be wealthy than if you weren't. Because this is still very much about how strong were you? Could you maintain what you had, mm-hmm. say, from other raiders? Could you overtake other people? And the, the idea that they, they, they were wealthy has some merit. But also, I think at this point, we're still looking very much at people who are capable of fighting in Saul's battles and in Saul's wars. Because we're getting ready to, to go into the first war that, that Saul's going to, to fight. And so most commentators believe this is the basis for Saul's army. This is where things begin. And so 
we're going to uh, see this term used again uh, with uh, David's men later on. So it's kind of going to be an interesting term where it is almost exclusively used of warfare. Yeah. So we have this weird progression from, you know, uh, wealthy and then warrior, and then they're warriors who are, are the elite. So these are who these men, repre- what this word represents of these people. Right. But verse 27 is interesting. And it says, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they, are, and they despised him and brought him no present. But Saul, but he, Saul, saved his, held his peace. Worthless fellows, benably all. It's the same word that we've encountered so sure. many times. And these, these men, what's, what's interesting about them, they're accurately assessing the situation. They're not wrong. Can Saul save us? That's, that's the question. God could save them, but now they've got this king, and they don't seem to be very fond of either having a king in general or having Saul as a king in particular. The, there's no distinction made. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, you know, Benably all in previous passages, these have been really negative folks. We, we don't want to have anything to do with them. We don't want to be like them. These were the guys who raped the woman, uh, the concubine in Gibeah. Mm-hmm. And so here, these are the ones who seem to understand something's wrong with the situation. Samuel himself has said something's wrong with the situation. And Yet the ones who seem to be speaking the truth are the ones that the Bible condemns in a way with, by using this, this title, mm-hmm. where the men of valor are the ones who are following Saul. Yeah. And so it's very confusing. And this is one of those contradictions when we introduced the book. We talked about there were going to be contradictions that gave um, uh, commentators and scholars a, a huge pause. This is one of those places that, that has led to a lot of confusion. Because, you know, does God suddenly approve of the king? Did God change his mind? Right. And so. <laughs> okay, so the way I kind of see this is looking at, you know, if someone were, were telling this story from the position of, because pretty certain this was a lot of this was collected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the way I would see it is, is this section is being told by people who supported Saul. Right. Or they're seeing things from more of just uh, what seems to be going on as opposed to the divine perspective. So that would be kind of how I would see it. It, it. it very well could be. I think we really aren't going to get God's perspective on things until chapter 12. Okay. And that's when Samuel comes along and he explains his position and he talks about Saul's position and and he talks about what's happening with that transition from judge to monarch. And he, he breaks it down. And I think we kind of, you know, just like those people needed a prophet to, to explain things to them, we need Samuel's words to explain it to us. Mm-hmm. Or it does just seem like God isn't being consistent and that he has changed his mind and flipped his position. Otherwise, why would he call someone who doesn't support this king that he didn't want them to have? Mm-hmm. Benably all, and so you know that that leads us to some very interesting questions for our time, you know, and our view of leadership because you know all leadership only becomes leadership because God allows it. So whether or not we agree with leadership, what should be our proper attitude? Right. And so I mean, I don't want to get too political or anything, but how do we reconcile with what 
what the scripture is plainly saying with our our situation today. So, and we're on the, you know, the verge of a great big election. So, you know, this is where we're at in the timeline. Yeah. Uh, by this point, it's going to, you know. Well, there's a big election every yeah. year. Every year. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I, I wanted to throw out here, I, I think this is kind of interesting. In the ESV, you have Saul held his peace, right? Mm-hmm. And in the uh, JPS, it says he pretended not to mind. Right. And then, but if you, and then it has a footnote of like more literal translation. Mm-hmm. It's um, was it he he was as one who holds his peace, and so I think that's kind of interesting because it's kind of like, yeah, it bothers me, but I'm, I'm gonna just gonna I'm gonna try to to rise above it, yes. kind of thing. And this is actually one of the things that the rabbis fault him for, because as an individual, he was you know it would be celebrated that he decided to hold his peace. Right. As a king, he had no right. To hold his peace when the insults weren't for him as a person. The insults were for the king mm-hmm. who represented God. Therefore, he should have enacted some kind of punishment against those who are rising up against him. See. And you know, like I said, that's the rabbinical take. So we always have to you know, try to figure out what, what's right and wrong with that. Well, you, we have to figure out the purpose for mm-hmm. their interpretation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and Saul... He really is at the mercy of his people. That's one of the things we're going to find as we move forward. He he does not know how to say, I am king. I am sovereign. This mm-hmm. is my will. And this is what's going to happen. He He's always checking in with, he, he's checking the polls. Sure, you know, he, sure. he, he just is. And that's one of the things that gets him into trouble. Right. Uh, there's a multitude of things that gets Saul into trouble, <laughs> but we're, we'll get there. So we're getting ready to move into chapter 11, but before we jump into the text, um, our archaeologist in residence uh, was kind enough to point me to some great articles because we're going to be dealing with Ammon, um, the Ammonites, and I wanted to look at them before we get into the text so we kind of have some footing. Uh, this is one of those times that knowing the, the culture and the background actually helps us understand what's happening here better. Um, Obviously, the sons of Ammon, uh, they actually are uh, part of the biblical narrative all the way along since the time of Lot and his daughters. Moab and Amnon were, were brothers. Okay. So the, the geography, if you wanted to look it up on a map today, this is modern-day Ammon in Jordan. So we can actually, you know, we can find that. And I think a lot of us have actually heard that place mentioned on the news. Sure. So... When the Bible talks about Ammon, they're talking about Moab and Edom often at the same time because Moab, Edom, Ammon, they're, they're all um, part of the family, if you will. They're cousins to the Israelites. Now, as far as geography, you can go from Edom to Moab to Ammon, and you can see that historically there's less rain in Edom and there's more rain in Ammon and Moab kind of gets the middle amount. And this is important because in Edom, the people there, they were, they were nomads. As a matter of fact, there's still nomads there today. And they didn't settle in one place. They didn't raise a lot of crops. They, they relied more on uh, herds and flocks to support their dietary needs. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Moab, you start getting into a few more crops, but you still have some nomadic uh, activity going on. But by the time you get to Ammon, we're talking 
very well established fields and crops being planted every day. It's much more focused on being able to to have those farming communities. We start to see walled cities. There's no walled cities in Edom. There's a bunch of walled cities or, you know, significantly more in Ammon. And you're like, okay, well, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah, I'm curious. If, well, if you've <laughs> got a couple of things, if you've got walled cities, this means that now if you've got people on trade routes, they know where to go to meet you. Mm-hmm. They aren't yeah, just wandering yeah. around the desert to, to try to figure out, hey, I've got some pots that Joe said he wanted last time I came through. So now you know, I can go to this city. They're going to be there on Thursday and it's going to be okay. Sure. Um, and we know that there are major trade routes because what we find are some Egyptian artifacts and we find artifacts from other countries where different people from different countries had passed through or maybe settled within the cities. Mm-hmm. So we know this is happening. The other thing, reason this is important, the other reason this is important is the um, when you have an invader and you're a nomadic society, big whoop, pack up, move over, let them come in. Sure. If you are in a society where you have a walled city and your existence depends on your crops, now this invader, I mean, they're posing a whole different kind of threat to you yeah. and your people. It takes a while to build those walls. Exactly. And this could be why when the Philistines started moving in, that the Ammonites decided, we need to do something about Israel. We need to grab some more territory so we can make sure that we're okay. If the Philistines get us here, where are we going to go to? How are we going to provide a buffer zone between us? Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these things come into play. And because before this, the Ammonites don't really seem to be that much of a threat. But in chapter 11, they decide, oh, wait a minute, we need to attack Israel. And there doesn't seem to be any provocation. So we were, you know, when you start to, to look at the city and figure out, you know, their significance, unfortunately, despite the fact that they have, you know, these walled cities, we don't really have a whole lot of information about them. And we only have one temple, our, our most important inscription about them, which is, appears in the 8th century, only has eight lines. And so when I say 8th century, we're talking two to 300 years after Samuel was written. Right. Um, the Bible really is one of the primary sources for information about the Ammonites. and you know, depending on which archaeologist you're talking to, whether or not they're going to consult the Bible for information that's kind of up in the air. So uh, the, where we have three, uh, well, sorry, I almost skipped ahead. Amnon's first uh, primary deity is Melcombe. Sorry. Okay. Melcombe. Yeah. Great word. Uh, we've got seals. We have signets that have names built on that. So where we might have you know, like Samuel or is built off of Elohim mm-hmm. or Joshua is built off of Yahweh. Uh, Malcolm is built on, has names built off of his name. So, okay. you know, belonging to Malcolm or Malcolm is light. These would have been names that were common. Yeah. Um, we have three unattested references to Malcolm in the Bible. One is first Kings. That's 11, five, first Kings 33. Second Kings 23 through 13. Now, all of these are about Solomon. And whenever he starts marrying all the various wives and decides to start serving other gods, this is one of the gods that he decides to, to serve. Okay. Now, there may be more references in the Bible to Milcom. And the reason why is, you got to remember, uh, 
Hebrew wasn't originally written with vowels. Sure. sure. So Milcom is spelled Mem Lamed Ket uh, or Mem uh, M L K. <laughs> and so if you have those letters and you put the vowels to, to get the Milcom, then of course it's his name. But if you put the vowels Melech, then we have kings. So some okay. of the references for kings, like their king or our king, could actually be a reference to this God. So, for instance, 2 Samuel 12, 26-31, it describes uh, when David captures the city of Rabbah. It's an Ammonite town, and David takes the crown of Milcom. So it, is it their king, or is it the name of a God? We, we don't know. Hmm. So we, we've got to you know, look at the clues. And one of the clues is the crown weighs 75 pounds. Okay. That's a lot to wear on your head. It's probably going to be on an idol or a large statue, right? That's what you would think. Now here's where the problem comes in. David puts it on his head. So we, this is why it's not clear what we're talking about. Okay. If we just knew it was 75 pounds and David hadn't put it on his head, then we would go, oh, yeah, definitely. Idol, no, no problem. But the fact that David puts it on his head, yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, and we we also know that, you know, taking the, the, the objects of worship from foreign gods, this was standard practice. We just saw that with the Ark and Dagon. Mm-hmm. Uh, another uh, scripture that kind of makes it, I think it makes it clearer in this case that we're definitely talking about Malcolm. It's uh, Jeremiah 49. And... It's uh, part of a series of oracles that are concerning the surrounding nations, and it includes Philistia, Moab, Edom, and Egypt. Uh, The one that's most significant for us is Moab. And in verses 48, verse 4, sorry, chapter 48, verse 7b, it says, And Chemosh, who we know Chemosh is the Moabite god, Mm -hmm. shall go into exile with his priest and with his officials. Well, in Jeremiah 49, verse 3, it says, for their king shall go into exile with his priest and his officials. So there it would seem, you know, why, if Jeremiah is going to say Chemosh, their God, is going to go in exile with priests and officials, it would seem to make sense that Ammon would go into exile with Milcom and his priest and officials. So the parallel wording should make us think that we should have parallel value in the words. So in that case, it would seem that Milcom would, would be appropriate. Okay. So the other thing we've got going on here is Milcom may actually be like a title that was specific to the Ammonites for El, because in some of the inscriptions, we do have El mentioned as one of the Ammonite uh, deities. Sure. And, um, you know, we've got this blend of, of influences within Ammonite towns because they are trade cities, because they've been established, and everybody kind of goes through there because they know they can find a place to sleep for the night or buy mm-hmm. a meal. Uh, they aren't having to track down somebody in the desert. Very little is known about how um, Amnon worshipped Mokom. However, we think, based on the way the Bible presents Amnon and Moab together, that there was kind of this parallel development, and that seems to be the case uh, that archaeology is building for the development of Ammon. Okay. So, um, for example, in Jeremiah 48 and 49, we know that Chemosh, the Moabite god, demanded child sacrifices. Now, 
We don't have that specified with Milcom, but we do know that in modern day Amman, there's a temple and we have burned human bones. And we think that this is a place of human uh, sacrifice. Right. Finally, the other thing that's got to come into play is Milcom. Like I said, it's built on that Memlamid Ket. Um, we've got a third word that's built on that Memlamid Ket, and that's Moloch. Right. So our references to Moloch and Milcom may actually be referring to the same deity. Okay. And so we know in Jeremiah 32, 33, it says they built high places for Baal, the valley of the son of Hinnon, and they offered up the sons and daughters to Moloch. And Moloch and Baal are connected, and we also have references to Baal in the Ammonite sites. So the high places, you know, we know that these were specifically used for human sacrifice. And God says in Leviticus 24 and 5 that there's consequences for anyone who gives their child to Moloch. Right. And so you kind of think, it's kind of the question, well, why Moloch? Why did he specify that one? But Milcom shows up. What, what's going on here? And this is the reason why sometimes with the Hebrew, when you don't have those vowel pointings, you are relying on context that you can have different translations translate things differently. Um, you know, sometimes a translation was made before an archaeological discovery was made. So we may not have had the temple in Amnon to, to inform that there was human sacrifices and that would fill in the gap. This is why archaeology is so important. Sometimes, uh, you know, it really is just the call of the translator. And you have to ask yourself, does it change the theological message or make any significant impact on the narrative? Right. And so um, whether we're talking in Milcom or Moloch or King, every time that we, we, we encounter um, things to do with the Ammonite gods and leadership, it's not going to be good. Sure. And so we need to, to keep that in mind, which this is another problem because later on, this guy who shows up in chapter 11 with Saul, he's going to show up in chapter, I forget what chapter. Anyway, he's going to show up later with David. Okay. And it's like, David, what are you doing? So this is going to be, it gets confusing because not so much the narrative is muddled. It's like, what's going on in their minds? And of course, we, the Bible doesn't always tell us that. Right. right. So. Anyway, all of that background. So the Ammonites. So there's a lot of background. Yeah. It's going somewhere, right? It is. It is. So Ammonites, bad guys, uh, child sacrifice, human sacrifice, not good. Um, Verse one. Then the Chash of the Ammonite went up to besiege Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to the Nakash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Okay. So. Alarm bells, whistles, anything that says danger, Will Robertson, is, should be going off in your brain right about now. Mm-hmm. Because Nakash the Ammonite, this is the exact same word that we have in Genesis 3. I was wondering about that. Yeah. He, he is... It, but, we, but we missed that because of the translation. Right, because the translation, they translate it as serpent in the garden. And, and here it's a transliteration. Exactly. That's, and, so, so it would be shining one? Shining one. Yeah, that's, that's a but pretty the, good one. And because we think, yeah, Nakash can be serpent, can be shining one. Um, this is the same word that, you, that is used in Numbers 21 when the serpents in the wilderness bite all the people. Uh, Isaiah 27, it's the same word that, they, that he uses to describe Leviathan as a twisting serpent. Mm-hmm. So 
this is this name in Genesis three doesn't necessarily denote an actual snake. It's a spiritual entity. And I think we all understand that, that, you know, whether or not it was an actual snake who a spiritual entity was using, or it was referring to something more, it doesn't matter. The point is Adam and Eve were listening to the wrong, (laughs) wrong source. But this tells us something about the character because names are not just signifiers. They tell us about a person's identity, their destiny and all that. He's crafty. He's a means of discipline, and he's an enemy over whom God will have victory. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we're getting ready to clue in for that. Would, would the Shining One kind of like imagery there be like someone who was exalted or mm-hmm. someone who was uh, yeah. uh, influential? Yeah. I, which I mean. Because I, if you've got any kind of like Shining, you would think of someone who was wearing either, you know, like the ephod of the priest with, mm-hmm. all, the, with mm-hmm. all the jewels or armor. And, you know, armor was pretty scarce at this point in time, unless you're a Philistine. Right. And so if you had a set of armor, you're polishing it up. You want everybody to know, hey, look what I got. Right. right. So, uh, and you're going to be pretty influential if you're outside of the Philistines. Pretty influential. I mean, because the guy, I mean, because seriously, they're talking about making a treaty and he's like, well, the treaty's going to cost you your right eye. Yeah. And they're like, I mean, and, and, and the response to that is, can we have seven days to think about losing our right eye? Yeah, I, exactly. I mean, I guess the other option is death. <laughs> right. But I mean. <laughs> what are you willing to give up to live? Yeah, but it's just the, the, that negotiation. It's, uh, a, it's a weird. Can, can we just live in peace only if I get the right eye of everyone? Well, Let me think about it. And, you know, and we go, oh, that's horrible. But then you remember Saul, whenever David wants to become a son-in-law, you know, well, what should I get? Oh, I need 100 Philistine foreskins. This is not a, a pretty or safe time to be alive, okay? Right. Yeah, it's pretty rough. You, you, you just got to accept that this is a time when it was blood and bone. I mean, everything had, your survival depended on everything. So yep. the Ammonites, um, they're an interesting people within the biblical narrative because in Deuteronomy 16 through 25, Israel's commanded, don't harass the Ammonites. This is when they're traveling through the wilderness. God says, hey, I've given this land to you, to them. You don't get to take it. And I even drove out the Rephaim in front, before them mm-hmm. because I wanted them to have a place to live because they're part of the covenant community, not the covenant community of Israel, but part of the, the extended protection. Yeah, they're extended family. Uh-huh. They're, they're descendants. Yeah. They're cousins. It, exactly. And as part of the family, they, they get to choose what role they're going to play in this. Now, they aren't going to produce the Messiah. That, that's, that's beyond their ability. Sure. But they can decide whether or not they want to join with the rest of the family destiny and have and play a part in this and, and worship Yahweh exactly. And, and, and we see the Canaanites did that, so um, they actually become a part of uh, of Israel and they get absorbed into the uh, tribe of Judah. Yeah. So Deuteronomy twenty three three, there's been a huge reversal. God says, "Don't let them into my assembly. I don't want anything to do with them because they." They caused us problems. Mm-hmm. Number one, they wouldn't feed you. But number two, when the Moabites and the, the Midianites got together to talk to Balaam to try to curse Israel, the Ammonites were part of that. And because they tried to do this to my people, I don't, we aren't going to mess with them anymore. Sure. They had their chance. So you, you, don't, you don't get to play. Now, 
David seems to, like I said, he seems to have a really weird relationship with him. And we'll get back to that. So Amos 1, 13, this is an interesting verse. It says, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So this is referring to a separate incident, but this illustrates very well why God is not going to have anything to do with the Ammonites. They, they are brutal and, you know, they just don't reflect him well. Mm. And remember back in Judges 1, when the tribe of Judah cut off the thumbs and the big toe of um, Bezek, God was not happy with that either. That kind of torture didn't have a place mm-hmm. in his kingdom. Yeah. So Jabesh Gilead, you've got to remember the city. You know, this is the city from the last part of Judges that they went to and they killed everybody except for the women who were of age to be married and hadn't been married before. And they gave them to the tribe of Benjamin. Mm-hmm. And so it's across the Jordan from, you know, everything else that's been going on with Saul and Samuel is on the West side of the Jordan, right? This is on the East side of the Jordan. And so this is a town that connects us back to that Levite and concubine story, but it has really strong ties because this means every man who was alive in Benjamin and from the tribe, anyone in Benjamin actually, uh, who was alive in the day of Saul, they had relatives in Jabesh Gilead, whether it was they were, you know, direct descendants or they were, it was by marriage, they were connected to this town. So this is a very personal swipe at Saul himself. And we're supposed to remember how Saul's tribe actually continues to exist. Yeah. So we still are dealing with the fallout of what happened to one woman. Mm-hmm. And, and we are, I mean, chapters and chapters of Bible away from her, Yeah. but she's still having an impact. So make a treaty with us, literally cut a covenant with us. Um, you know, this is a direct violation of God's command. At Deuteronomy 7, uh, verse 2b, you shall not make a covenant with them. Okay, that specific, that simple. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. They said, we'll serve you. We've already talked about how kings are representatives of other gods. You don't serve another king because if you serve another king, you're serving another god. This is why the Jews had such a problem with the Roman occupation. Right. And right. it wasn't just, we don't want to be under another political ruler. It's, we see this as an extenuation of their religious rule. So, all of this information from that one little verse. So we've, we've got problems all over the place. Mm-hmm. Verse two, but Nakash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you and that I gouge out all of your right eyes and thus you will bring disgrace on all of Israel. Like I said, Ammonite brutality, it's throughout the Bible. But what this does, this destroys their depth perception. So they are not going to be able to fight. They're less likely to rebel. I mean, you can't really shoot an arrow if you, you've got one eye. Right. Uh, very few people are going to be able to master that skill. But they would still be able to farm. They would still be able to raise cattle. They would still be able to do all the things that would let them play, pay tribute to their new masters. And so it, it's a very strategic and it's actually a very effective way of controlling the people. But it's also, there's some underlying tones here because in Zechariah eleven seventeen, God curses a worthless shepherd and he goes and talks about what he's going to do. 
and he's going to strike out his right eye. And most of the time when you read that, what commentators will say, well, this is God saying that he's going to cause them to be spiritually blind. They're going to lose their spiritual perception. Mm -hmm. And so then, of course, I'm not really sure how that plays in, but I know it plays in with Jesus talking about if your right eye offend you, Mm -hmm. pluck it out. But the the point is the right side, it, it symbolizes authority, power, and, you know, when God strikes the worthless shepherd, he's basically removing his authority and power. And Nakash may be trying to symbolically blind Jabesh Gilead to the true authority of power. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that I found interesting is the original Nakash, he was trying to blind Adam and Eve to what he was trying to do. Right. He, he, was, he said, I'm trying to, to open your eyes. And the act does open their eyes. But ever since then, it, the, the mission has been to close people's eyes. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of uh, makes sense that this man called the Kosh might continue to try to, to blind God's people. Yeah. So, but the real purpose, and this is why, where it comes out, thus bring a disgrace on all of Israel. Jabesh Gilead, they're not the end goal. That they're just a stepping stone. Mm-hmm. They, he doesn't care about them. I mean, they're, they're a little town who's trying to rebuild themselves after a, a major catastrophe. Um, in Judges, we learn that they were completely wiped out, or they were supposed to be. We often find that when the Bible talks about a people or a group of people being completely wiped out, there's usually some stragglers on the edges who, who return and they'll rebuild. And so in those cases, you know, symbolically and functionally, they were devastated. But there, there seems to still be some people who who were able to come back and rebuild. And these would have been the cousins and the uncles and the grandfathers and grandmothers of, of Saul's party. Right. So when it, it's interesting that they decide to attack um, at this point, and there's probably a couple of reasons for this, but the main one, they, they want to bring disgrace to all of Israel, but Israel now has a king. Mm-hmm. And so they could really begin to unify and become a political and military threat now. Before this, there was no, that wasn't a problem. Now, when you've got a king to mobilize the military and to give, uh, has the authority to to give purpose and commission missions by this military, the neighbors, the neighboring states should start to look out and start to worry about what's going to happen. And so I think, one of the things that Amnon is or Nakash is trying to do here, he before Saul can actually make that that military institution, that monarchy um, firmly so firmly established that it can be effective, let's just hit him now. Yeah, Let, let's take it down before it can actually be something we have to worry about. And you know, it's it's a good strategy because if Saul takes the bait and he strikes and his army isn't prepared. Then all those worthless men from the last chapter, look, they're right. Yep. Saul, Saul can't save us. He can't even save the city where his family is. He can't save another town from the tribe of Benjamin. Why, why should we follow him? But if he, if he doesn't take the bait and he doesn't save the city, he's also proved the benevolently all correct. You know, yep. Nobody has a reason to trust him. And so the, the problem with this is they don't count on God's intervention. And the, we should notice that the operative word in this is save. 
you know, the B'nai B'lial is, can he save us? How can he save us? The, these people are saying, hey, give us seven days so we can see if anyone will save us. Mm-hmm. And it's going to, to be the primary word because that's what the people want. They need Saul to save them. Notice who they're putting their faith in to save them. Mm-hmm. They've already forgotten that it's supposed to be God. They're looking towards this man to be able to save them. So um, verses three and four, that's where the, the men of Jabesh Gilead ask for that seven day. And it's really, it's interesting that Nakash agrees. I mean, that's not something you see in military strategy very often. No, no. And it shows you that he really is focused on trying to discredit Saul and bring that disgrace on all of Israel. So they send out messengers. The messengers run 42 miles between the two cities that get to, to Gibeah, because that's where Saul's living. And um, Nakash waits because he believes there's no one to save Israel. Right. So in verse 5, Saul reappears. And I love the little detail that he, he's following the oxen home. He's still very much the farmer. He hasn't become the king yet. Right. He, he is still, uh, you know, he's just the country guy who somehow got swept up in the scheme that Samuel has to give the nation a king and trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And he finds all the people, they're weeping. And so he, you know, he, he demands to know what's going on. And he, he's told what happens. So verse so six and the first part of seven. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, had this happened before with the prophets, mm-hmm. uh, when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a, took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so it shall be, uh, it shall be done to his oxen. So... If you aren't remembering the Levite and the concubine now, you need to go back and yeah. reread that section to send up a cut-up body throughout the land. I mean, this is Gibeah. This is Jabesh Gilead. It's, it's the, the whole thing. It, it's all being replayed again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Spirit of the Lord, he's rushing on God, rushing upon God. But this also connects us back to Samson. On Saul. On Saul, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. And get my words correct. So, but it reminds us of Samson with with the lion again, in case anybody forgot. Mm-hmm. Uh, to cut up, it's the same word that was used of the concubine. And we talked about in the previous episode, there's two different words for cut up. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, as a sacrifice. And he spins them throughout the land and he ca- uses it as a call for battle to get everyone to, to join together. So we're supposed to be thinking of that story. So verse 7b says, the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. Again, direct wording. Well, you, you know, and you got to imagine Saul probably knew about this incident from, you yeah. know, how'd you meet mom? Um, well, <laughs> let me tell you, you know, a story, son. Yeah. It, <laughs> That's a whole different way for that show to go. Uh, <laughs> how I met your mother. <laughs> well, I wasn't necessarily thinking of that, but you know, it's that whole like he would have, he, that would have been a part of their local folklore. Uh-huh. Yeah. He would have grown up hearing that story and that would have influenced him. And what we're seeing here is. Well, and, and, and mm-hmm. before, before we get, this is, this is the reversal. And could it be one of those things like, this was a tragic event that defined mm-hmm. my town mm-hmm. and I'm going to take it and make it into something better. 
Exactly. And that's what we find with reversals so often is God takes something totally horrific and just, just sickening and he, he re- replays it, but then he changes it into something that brings him glory. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the point here. When Saul hears these words, he doesn't just decide, oh, you know, I think I'm going to go help them. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Mm-hmm. God was the one who sponsored this act of cutting up the oxen and sending it out throughout the land. This was God's idea. This wasn't Saul's idea. Right. At this point, Saul is, I mean, this is going to be Saul's shining moment because he is operating fully with God and he never regains this, this stature. And I think the, the point is that even though all these horrible things had happened in this land, it's time for that story to, the, the consequences of that story to be erased. Mm-hmm. And it's time for us to move into a new time and a new kingdom. Mm-hmm. where God can be glorified. And so th- this is the reason why it's being replayed, so you can remember that God is the one who's ultimately in control. He let you be stupid. He let you do horrible things. But you're at the end of your rope now. You're at the end of your leash. You don't get to go any further. And God's, God is going to redeem it. Mm-hmm. And, so, and often when God redeems something, it is that, it's that moment where he takes the most bloody and brutal truth and puts it right up on display mm-hmm. before you get to see the glorious side of things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Saul, he, he gathers the troops at Bezek. And Bezek, uh, you know, this is where Judah in chapter one had captured the Ammonite king and he cuts off his thumbs and his toes. Mm-hmm. And God wasn't real happy with that. And so when Saul's mustering his troops, he, he, musters them here at Bezek, but he also, it's interesting, what we're going to find is so often the troops are numbered, but then Judah's numbered. So there's always this distinction between all of Israel and then Judah and what they're bringing to the table. And you aren't, we aren't really given a good explanation for that, other than we aren't so, supposed to forget Judah's still around. Yeah. Judah still has a major part to play in what's getting ready to happen. So, yeah, hmm. he, he's off in the wings, and we haven't heard a lot about him since the days of Samson, mm-hmm. but he's going to, to continue to be an important person. So um, the only army in Israel's history that has been this large was the army that destroyed Benjamin. So it's very interesting that now where they had once gathered like this to destroy themselves, now they're going to go out after a common en- enemy. So uh, verse 9, Saul sends messages back to Jabesh Gilead and says, Tomorrow, by this time, the sun is hot. You shall have salvation. So tomorrow you'll be saved, that key word. Mm -hmm. And so verse 10, I love this. Again, it's it's good because uh, the wordplay is just awesome. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you. Literally, we will come out to you. And you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So Nakash hears this and he hears, oh, they're going to come out to me. They're going to surrender. Yeah. Hey, cool. We, we got We're this. <laughs> and he, he hears what he wants to hear. So we're seeing that this is not just the problem of Israelites doing this to God. Everybody seems to have a hearing problem. <laughs> and then they say, you can do with us what's good in your eyes. It is literally the phrase they use, which takes us right back to Judges mm-hmm. again. And so Saul, he, 
he uses this technique that he's going to use a couple times and it's been used in the past. Uh, Gideon specifically used it. Uh, he divides the, the troops into three parts. They surround the city. They, they defeat the Ammonites. They're scattered. Mm -hmm. Again, not a lot of uh, details. I mean, one verse is all we get about this battle. Uh, and it's an unqualified victory for this king. I mean, there's no caveats about it. Saul has just, he's kicked butt. And, you know, he's proven he's got the ability to, to win a battle. He's got the ability to be the king that the people want. Mm -hmm. And there's just no doubt that this, this is the guy. Right. And so, verse 12 through 13, uh, then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said to us, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. And so, you know, they just had this victory. And instead of just saying, hey, let's just celebrate and have a good time and appreciate the fact that... Well, while, while we got the swords out. <laughs> yeah, continue with our rat killing. <laughs> you know? It, We're already a mess. They really are. It, it, and... That they're looking for vengeance, and this this is the problem. They can't stay focused on on the good things, and you know, and the men of Jabesh Gilead. I mean, they should be really thrilled because, you know, one of the reasons why Nachash um, could have attacked was he could have, you know they destroyed the city once before, and they were cool with it. So why would they care if we do it? Right. You know, they they could have thought that they might have gotten away with it, but. We are seeing that this nation is starting to go, oh, yeah, I, I need to be paying attention to what's going on with the tribe beside me. And I need to be paying attention to what's happening at a national level. It's no longer going to be just me and my family in our tents or our town. We, we have to be unified mm -hmm. if we're going to stand against the, these outside forces. And I think this is one of the reasons why God said, okay, you know, it wasn't quite time, but yes, we are getting to a place where you are going to have to have a king that that is going to be able to stand against these outside forces. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, the Ammonites, they weren't a huge problem. They At this point, they were just kind of doing their own thing, and then they get a king, and boom, man, they're, they're right on the weakest part of Israel mm -hmm. and attempting to assert their dominance. So, you know, Saul has proven that, yes, he is the king, and to doubt him, that's not probably the wise thing to do. So the thing is, Saul, he defers to his right to enact any kind of retribution. Now, he could have, and according to the rabbis, he should have. But he, he decides that, no, he is just going to focus on the fact that, once again, God has saved the people. And Saul mm -hmm. does focus on God's salvation and not his own ability. I mean, but, I mean, good grief, the guy had the Spirit of the Lord rush upon him. Right. So he really isn't in a place where he can deny God's power. So verses 14 and 15, Samuel invites the people, notice it's Samuel, mm -hmm. invites the people to go to Gilgal to renew the kingship. Right. So this guy's been proclaimed king three times. It's not just, you know, he had the private ceremony with Samuel to begin with. Mm -hmm. He had the casting of the lots, and now we're going to renew it so that you, you've got to get a clue, people. This is the guy that well, God... Well, there, you figure since the time of the of the anointing and the time of the casting of lots, what's he been doing? He's he been working the, the field. So everyone's kind of like, yeah, so we've got this great king. He does 
what exactly? <laughs> Follows the oxen around. I mean, yeah. that's, and yeah, what what has he done to to really establish that he is the king? There seems to be some guys who followed him home, and you know they're probably lounging around eating whatever the farm is producing because his dad seems to be a pretty well to do guy, right? And Saul seems to be. Uh, still living at home with his dad at this point. We we don't really know a whole lot of his personal situation. We don't know if he has a wife at this point. We don't know if he has a son at this point. We we don't know anything. But after the, the victory, he he does invite the people to make that sacrifice. And the people once again make Saul the people make mm-hmm. king uh, Saul the king before the Lord. Right. So before it was the Lord had chosen Saul. And now the people say, hey, yeah, we're gonna work and accept him and they make peace offerings and they rejoice now what this does this is a chance for those who had said horrible things about saul behind his back they they can kind of say hey wait we changed our mind Mm -hmm. we're going to make a public display a public declaration we're going to bring you that gift that we didn't bring before right and we're going to let everybody know that yes we are on your side now, Gilgal is the same place that Joshua had assembled the nation after they had entered into Canaan. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the generation that had wandered in the wilderness, this is where they were circumcised because you didn't do that on the hot, sandy trails while you're walking all day. God's, God's good. Yeah. Um, celebrate the, they celebrate the Passover here. This is the first time Passover is celebrated in the new land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's also on the border between the northern and southern uh, tribes. And so just meeting there is a unifying political act and it it shows some smarts and we're starting to see that despite the fact that Saul's kind of been bumbling around a little bit he's kind of starting to get a feel for this thing called being a king yeah and that's not a good thing so but aren't quite there yet so the peace offerings they were when they're offered this is a celebration Mm -hmm. and these are the offerings that you do eat with right. your family, you do eat with others, so this is unity, and the the process is to be unifying. So, mm-hmm. um, it's now, very fitting. Now, now we translated as peace officering, uh, officering, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, my mouth's not working. We ate lunch. It messes yeah, with the calibration. <laughs> it does. I have to reset. Um, but we we trans it, it gets translated peace offering. Is it is it actually shalom part of that in you the know, Hebrew? I want to say that. I want to say that it is. And but, I mean, we don't have to know now, but I'm just curious well, if that's... Well, yeah, you've uh, got my brain, and so I'm in 1 Samuel what? Uh, we are in 1 Samuel 11. You think I would have looked at this. Verse that's, 15. Well, I mean, it's again, it's one of those things where we're really used to hearing the term mm-hmm. peace offering whenever it comes to the Old Testament. Well, and that's the, that's the thing, and you know, if, sometimes if somebody doesn't specifically ask me about it, it's like, oh yeah, I read it. Uh, do I actually remember what mm-hmm. it says? That's a whole other story. Well, I'm just curious about that. If that's the same thing, if it's like a an offering, because yeah. again, because we think of peace as in stopping Shalamim. war. Shalamim. Yeah. And, and so when we're looking at this, this is actually saying we've done all. Like it's completion. It's it's we've right. done what we need to do, and we can come together and and. Nothing broken and, and behold. Nothing missing. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not the absence of conflict. And I think that's one of the things we you're right, we miss out on in the English translation. Peace in the Bible is not an absence of conflict. It's wholeness. It mm-hmm. is completion. And uh, that's the reason why one of the first 
one of the very first uh, definitions that most seminary students learn is shalom is nothing missing, nothing broken. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you really think about that, if, if you are not missing anything, if you're not broken, even in conflict, mm -hmm. it, it's not going to rock your boat. It, mm -hmm. It's not going to hurt you. You're going to be able to rise above it. And so as a nation, now they're coming back together and nothing is missing and nothing is broken because Benjamin did survive. Mm -hmm. And did it survive the way God would have had it survive? No. Um, but that was not God's fault. That was the people making stupid vows and doing stupid things mm -hmm. because they weren't obeying God. Yeah, and you, and you have this peace offering, this this basically declaration of shalom mm -hmm. uh, with that Benjamin has basically been after Benjamin's basically been redeemed mm -hmm. uh, through through Saul's act. Yeah, uh, so that's, that's he, very interesting. He he has really reestablished the, this outcast tribe, this this tribe that's kind of been looked down on and pitied. Uh, he's reestablished them to a place of honor mm -hmm. that they had been missing out on. So you know. The story really does demonstrate that despite Samuel's misgivings, Saul could actually be a king. He mm -hmm. could actually pull this one off. And if you're just reading this for the first time and you, you don't know what happens next, it's kind of like, well, wait a minute, Samuel, you, you, you missed the boat here. Right. Because this is Saul's golden moment. He is never going to shine brighter than he does at this point in time. And only a God, only a king appointed by God could achieve such success. So, you know, what, who could question that? Why would anybody be against that, particularly God's prophet? Right. And so we, I think we forget that not everyone was ready for David to be king. Mm -hmm. And there was reason for Saul to be supported if you're just looking at the outward signs. And that's where we start with the story. You know, he's taller than everybody else, so he's got to be good. And he is good looking. That's what, you know, he's Tove. But now we're trying to, to understand, you know, what the people within that nation would see him as going forward as, mm -hmm. a, as a warlord, as a king who, who can fight these battles. And like we've talked about, and you know, the story does begin with that concubine, and we can't forget that. And the the fact that Saul is actually able to to take all these broken parts, very broken parts of the nation that the that have been listed off time and time again as being the most broken parts of the nation, mm -hmm. and to reunite them is it, it makes this a story of reversal and. You know, and I think we, we shouldn't forget, too, that Saul is the product of one of these raped women, mm -hmm. you know, and he, he's the one who ascends to the kingship. And I, I don't think we remember that's a part of his story, you know, whether it's his mom or his grandmother. But can you imagine him growing up in, in a household where that is your heritage mm -hmm. and, and having that story recounted not just in your own household, but, but every, everywhere. yeah, everyone had the same experience. And so I think that's, you know, that's got to play with your head and it makes you, you wonder, you know, how much did this factor into him not being able to accept the idea that he was going to be the king of Israel. Oh, right. And so the other thing that's going on here, and this is just real quick. Um, yeah, you, we take time. We, <laughs> yeah, Judah, whatever. Judah was mentioned in here. And, um, you know, when Judah had first entered Canaan, 
they were the ones who mutilated their prisoner of war. Mm-hmm. And now they're standing up to fight so that their people aren't going to be mutilated. So they, they stand up on behalf of someone else and said, no, we're not going to let these kinds of atrocities be a part of our, of our country. Right. We're going to defend people against it. So in some ways, Judah is even participating in that redemptive process and saying, hey, we, we, we don't have to be defined by our past either. Right. And, you know, this is a reminder that, you know, things are going to be changing at a very rapid rate of speed from here on out because we think, oh, well, you know, we got Saul as a king and so everything's going to be good and it's going to rock along pretty smooth. Yeah, we're going to have some wars, but now everything is going to uh, move from that place where even what's happening now, which is the, the healing process, mm-hmm. to, to the culmination of that healing process. and. That Saul, Benjamin, is going to be removed from power, and mm-hmm. Judah is going to take over because they're figuring out who they should be. Right. So in some ways, you can kind of see how Saul's reign's necessary if we're going to fully restore Benjamin mm-hmm. back to their place, but they can't remain there because they weren't the ones promised the kingship. Sure. So we've got to have Judah step up into that role, and of course, they're going to do that through David. Yeah. So, Which we'll get to next time. Uh, well, next Next session, probably. Somewhere. Probably not, <laughs> probably not next episode. No. But, we, but, we've got the whole story with uh, Saul and Jonathan, which... Oh, that's true. We've yeah. got a whole bunch going on there. That's, uh-huh. that's going to be... That's going to be fun. So Yeah. Anyway. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've had a great time and hope you do have, have had a great time as well. Um, we're, yeah. we're just regular folks here. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Regular might be a little too u- loose of a <laughs> use of the term. Well, you know. <laughs> You're using that with a lot of grace. <laughs> but if you had a good time and want others to have a good time with us, please like and share, get, rate us, give us a review on iTunes. Um, feel free to join the conversation, Raven Creek SC, on all the social media, ravencreeksc.com. As where you can find us and our other shows uh, with uh, Joe Zaragoza at Commentarians, Luke T. Harrington on uh, Change My Mind. We all have a good time here. Um, if you want to help keep us having a good time. <laughs> stop saying good time. <laughs> Just stop. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a long weekend. We're getting a little silly. Um, if you want to help keep the show going. Patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC helps keep us going and we do appreciate it. And we'll see you next time, maybe after we get a little more sleep. So Bye. have a good one. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.